You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you today. Hey, if you're new at Hope, I just want to tell you we're really glad you're here, and we hope that you're encouraged and, and helped by being here today. So we're continuing on in our series called Beholding Jesus. As we're beginning to move toward the home stretch here, we're going to begin to, could you say it, laser in on how big he is, sort of week by week as we move along. And we're kind of getting in that direction as we move forward today. So today we're focusing on Jesus and the miraculous. So the Bible renders a grand narrative, a grand story. I would call it something like a romantic tragedy victory. Never heard of that genre quite in literature, but that's what I would call it. I would call it a romantic tragedy victory. This is a love story, no doubt about it. This is a story where God creates people as an expression of his love. He calls them to his heart to be with him forever. There's a lot of tragedy in the story. The story ends victoriously. It's helpful to keep that in mind to me as we embark on the idea of Jesus and the miraculous. Okay, so let's do something for a moment, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Will you stand up? We're going to play a very, very short game of Simon Says. Okay? Okay, everybody knows how this works, I think. Okay, ready? Simon says, touch your nose. Okay, Simon says, game's over. You can sit down. Short game. I said it was going to be really short. Okay? In the earlier service, I learned something. I was doing this whole rollout, and I said, okay, Simon says, touch your nose. Everybody did, and I said, okay, you can sit down now. Nobody sat down. And Dan, Dan goes, they need to hear Simon Says sit down. So, okay, I hadn't thought about that. All right, we're going to come back to that in a moment. It's a little placeholder. Jesus and the miraculous. So you start getting into this terrain, and you begin asking the question, what's a miracle? I mean, really, what is a miracle? And I'm not being cute with this. I think it's a reasonable question to try to address and to ask. What is a miracle? At a certain level of approach, I think a lot of us would say, well, to be considered a miracle, it would have to be very unusual. Like if it happens every day and it's normal to us, somehow we have a hard time categorizing it in the category of a miracle. So whether that's... really a reliable way to look at it or not. I think anecdotally, we think of it that way. It's got to be really unusual. If it happens all the time, we don't think of it as a miracle. So for instance, the birth of a baby, is that a miracle? Well, if you get into really studying and paying attention medically, scientifically, biologically to how that all happens, it's quite miraculous. It's quite remarkable, but we're used to this, generally speaking. So we don't call it a miracle. But sometimes we might. Let's say there's a couple that are having a hard time being able to have a child. 
And so they're praying and praying and praying, and this journey goes on for quite a long time, and it's emotional and not easy. And then finally, they conceive, and they're going to have a child. That couple might call it a miracle based on the circumstances of their situation. Many couples might have never thought of this as a miracle because it all seems so normal. What about just how your brain works? If you get into studying how your brain works and how it processes and all that's involved in it, chemically, neurologically, but the chemical and the neurological produce the philosophical, that's like, what? That seems pretty miraculous. But we're used to that. So we don't tend to call it miraculous. Okay. So then we might say, well, then, to be a miracle, it has to be something that operates outside natural laws and parameters. All right, that's maybe worth considering for sure. All of this now is going to depend on if there is something bigger outside, someone perhaps bigger outside. Because if something happens outside of natural laws and parameters, natural laws and parameters tell us it had to come from somewhere or come from someone. So operating outside natural laws and parameters teaches us that it had to come from someone or somewhere outside the natural laws and the parameters. <clears throat> so you're going to hear a lot about C.S. Lewis in this message because I think he's got the best thinking in this terrain. C.S. Lewis, trying to describe the way God works, he uses the analogy of God being a playwright and all that is happening in the world being part of the unfolding drama that the playwright has written. So the playwright is outside of the play. The playwright writes the storyline, the play, play, excuse me, playwright creates the characters. The play has a script and the play rolls out. When I was a kid growing up, my mom always loved theater. And so every year at Christmas, as a family experience, kind of a Christmas time experience, my mom would be the catalyst to get tickets to a Broadway play. We lived just outside of New York City. And, you know, five people, good seats at a Broadway play. That was a big kind of a Christmas gift for our family. So I have memories of going to Broadway shows pretty much every year, mid, late December, around that time of year. So then you start learning a little bit about Broadway shows. And one of the things about Broadway shows is they'll always talk about, like, the longest-running Broadway show. <clears throat> Some of them are going for years and years and you're familiar with a bunch of names of Broadway shows that went for years and years. I could list them, but you know them. So ostensibly what that means is night after night after night after night after night after night, for many years, the play goes right according to the way the playwright has written it. But if the playwright decided sometime in, let's say, year number three, that he or she wants to adjust the story a little bit, the playwright can say, hey, you know what? Tonight, when she dies and she's lying on the bed, I want her to get up again. 
Okay, so that's going to happen on that particular night. Well, all of a sudden, everybody's like, that's never happened before. That is a complete anomaly to everything that we're used to as we're all wrapped up in this drama. Was it a miracle that she got up? Well, all of a sudden, you have to manage the dimensions. Well, like, no. I mean, a woman who's alive, she's lying on the bed. She's in the drama. Was it a miracle that she got up? No. The playwright wrote the script that night and said, we're going to do it differently tonight. We're going to have her get up. Was it a miracle that she got up? No. It was different, for sure. And why was it different? Because the playwright intervened that night. Now, maybe the next night we go back to the same script and it doesn't roll out with that difference. You see, for it to be a miracle, for the playwright to intervene, to make it unique like that, it can't be random. You can't have that happening all the time. If the playwright is writing different randomnesses, like popcorn every single night, then you don't have a play, you don't have a story. We can't find ourselves in it. If our lives were managed by the playwright that way, with random popcorn intervention happening all the time, honestly, we could not exist sanely because the confusion and the distortions would be impossible to live with. So the playwright has written the way it works, and this is the way it works all the time, except for the rare times when the playwright decides to intervene and make an adjustment. I think you get the picture. So the first question is, is there a playwright? Is there an outside bigger designer? You see, it has to have a natural process, what we would call a scientific process, that has reliable functions that are predictable and repeat all the time if there is to be even the capacity for us to live with this sanely. Okay, so we have that on the one hand. You can't have meaningless stuff happening all the time with a playwright intervening all over the place with randomness. We couldn't exist in it. We would go crazy. So C.S. Lewis said, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. You see, it's our capacity for meaning that would make us look at it and discern whether it has meaning or not. If it had no meaning, we would have no receptors or the capacity to search the question of meaning. So it has meaning. The very fact that we're asking the question and are able to navigate that question suggests that it has meaning. So if it has meaning, it would suggest that something has given it meaning. So for me, I remember late teenage years, I had no receptors for religion whatsoever. I thought it was a crutch for the weak. I thought it was the opiate of the masses. I thought it was intellectually unacceptable. But now I've come to the place where it's far too orderly in the magnitude of its complexity to be the result of random forces. It's no longer intellectually viable to me that this is a result of random physical forces without a designer. Okay, these are all little building blocks. In other words, the scientific design of the predictability of the natural order 
leads me to believe there has to be someone who designed it. In other words, science has led me to believe in a larger creator. So now we get to an interesting little quote from Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was not a believer in a personal God, the way we might talk about it, but listen to what he said. Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we with our modest powers must feel humble. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort. That's Albert Einstein. Okay, so we're going to look at a particular work of Jesus, the miracle at the wedding in Cana. Was it a miracle? Oh, that's a good question. John, the gospel writer, calls it a sign. And again, I'm not being cute with this. John usually refers to these events as signs. John is the most theological, big picture writer of the four gospel writers. He's the one who is most descriptive of who Jesus is in his larger grandeur. John rarely calls them miracles. He usually calls them signs. The other gospel writers tend to call them miracles more. And hopefully I'll help us see more of that. Generally speaking, commentators say that there are 37 miracles that we identify in the Gospels, actions of Jesus. Okay, you ready? On the third day, a wedding took place in the Cana, in Cana in Galilee. On the third day. On the third day, on the third day. On the third day, a wedding took place. Did I mention it was the third day? Okay. On the third day, a wedding took place. If you know the Bible, right there, you know we are getting tipped into a massive reveal right here. All right, so let me read it for you. On the third day, all right, I'll keep going. I'm sorry, I can't get over it. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Think about her, who she is, if you're familiar with the Bible, try to remember Luke 2 as a little placeholder. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and the child you will conceive will be called the Son of the Most High. Okay, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. How about that? Jesus and his disciples got married to a wedding. Apparently, they weren't too religiously weird. They got invited. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. I've always loved this story. It's like a mom winking at her son. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour hasn't yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It just makes me laugh. No problem, Jesus can take care of it. Hey, talk to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, take care of this problem. Mom, no way, I can't believe you're doing this to me. <laughs> why do you involve me? My hour's not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I just imagine her winking, smiling, and leaving for the other room. Nearby stood six stone water jars, Okay, we're not talking about jars. Jars is a bad word. It's not a bad word. It's not the right word. Six stone water, big 30-gallon things. They would stand this high. They would be this big around. And they would hold about 20 to 30 gallons of water. Six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, 
fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so a brief intro to miracles. Jesus is turning water into wine. Let's step back and look at Genesis 1.1, the opening of the entire narrative of the drama. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. All the creeds describe the Holy Spirit as the Lord, the giver of life. So the Spirit of God, the Lord, the giver of life was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. How did God create everything out of nothing? Same way you touched your nose. He's God. If I said, was you touching your nose a miracle? I think most everybody would be like, no, it's normal. I can touch my nose. It's not a big deal. Okay, but similar to the storyline we've been following, some of you maybe at some point in your life or the life of someone you loved was maybe injured and they couldn't, they couldn't move their arms or they had paralysis or they'd had a stroke or an accident and they weren't able to move their arms and you're praying and praying and praying and then lo and behold, they moved their arms. What is ordinary to us every day becomes a miracle in that moment. And so is it a miracle that God created the heavens and the earth? Well, I don't think so if this is God. God creates the heavens and the earth in the same way that we touched our nose. And remember, it started with words. The whole Simon Says things was a little play on the example. It says, God said, let there be light. So I started by saying, touch your nose. So the words make an action follow, and the action creates the result. So Genesis 1-1 introduces us to the big picture of the God who has created all of it. But then we begin to realize that our knowledge of things is much smaller than we ever thought. Isn't it ironic to you, it is to me, that a mark of intelligence is the ability to recognize that you don't know very much. Doesn't that intrigue you? It intrigues me. A mark of wisdom is the capacity to know that you don't know very much. Well, wait, we would think that if you're wise, you would say, I know everything. No, if you're wise, you would say, I've realized I know very little. So part of what we're dealing with here is how big is our capacity and how big is God's capacity? I would say... The longer I've lived life, the, real, the more I realize my capacity is very small. My intellectual capacity, my capacity to control things, influence things, make things happen. The longer I live, the smaller I get. So here's a little illustration in Job chapter 38. Job is a remarkable story. It's breathtaking, it's hard, it's arduous about a man's suffering, but it's also about his transformation, about how he becomes remade as a man deeper, more beautiful, and how his faith goes from a distant idea to a personal reality. Protesting in the midst of his difficulties, as is expected 
in life, Job is pouring out his complaint to God. God's rigorous with Job. So the Lord speaks to Job out of the storm, and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. In other words, in this rigorous moment, Job is having his perspective dramatically changed. And God is revealing how big he is to him. And when Job is protesting, God is saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know the stars by name? Because I named them all and I put them all in place. It's a perspective moment. So for the sake of perspective, as we try to navigate this terrain, here's an old illustration. I'm bringing it back around again. Imagine that eternity is all of the airspace in this room. Okay, it's a lot of airspace. I don't know how many square feet or cubic yards it would be, but it would be a lot. Okay, the only problem with the illustration is eternity wouldn't have any walls. It would just keep going and be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but you get the point. Creation, all that we experience, live, and know about, Genesis 1-1, all the, th- all the way through the narrative, it's all like this pencil right here. So here is like Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here is the whole flow of history over the years, the years, the years. Here is the consummation of history, Jesus' return, and the consummation of history as God sets up his full and final reign. All of that history, everything that's happening is happening on this pencil right here, suspended in the midst of all of this eternity. So we on this pencil, where are we? Well, we don't know because we don't know how long it's going to be. Are we like here? Are we like here? Are we here? We're not sure. But we do know that our lifespan, it's too small to even measure on the pencil. And the pencil is really small compared to the larger experience of the eternal surroundings. The scriptures give us an understanding that God is eternal and big and grand and fills all this space Our earthly experience, the whole of human history is like this little pencil line here, and we're just a tiny little less than a millimeter section on the pencil. Okay, so it's the third day, and Jesus and his disciples and his mom are at a wedding. His mother, his mother, just think of it for a moment. So the wine has run out. This is his mother who was told by an angel, you will be the mother who will become the mother of the Messiah. And this will happen, though you will have never been intimate with a man. And she says, how will this happen? And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will conceive this child within you. She's not dumb. If you read it closely, she says, I'm trusting but this is outside of my understanding. And yet this happens, and then he's born. And the Bible tells us she treasured all of this up in her heart. So when it says his mother was there, and this encounter happens with his mother, this is the woman who remembers the angel speaking to her about the way this conception would happen. This is the woman who felt that little child develop inside of her. This is the woman who gave birth to that child through all the natural grit and guts and blood of giving birth. This is a woman who knows 
While we're asking how could Jesus do a miracle, she's knowing Jesus himself is the miracle. And so God steps into the wedding as a playwright into a play. And he does a work here with Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, if God creates a miraculous spermatozoan in the body of a virgin, it doesn't proceed to break any laws. The laws at once take over. Nature is ready. Pregnancy follows according to all the normal laws. And nine months later, a child is born. Is it a miracle? I think it's more an intervening, the playwright entering the play for certain strategic reasons that are significant to the playwright. So he intervenes. So when you talk about water into wine, C.S. Lewis again says, is it a miracle? Well, we would call it a miracle, but water always turns into wine. Like water rains from the sky, it goes into the soil, it goes into the roots, it goes into the grapevine, it makes the grapes, they get plump with juice. The juice is pressed and it's fermented and you have wine. All wine was at once water. Water always turns into wine. What Lewis suggests is Jesus is not overriding the natural processes. He's intervening in the chronology of the process of how water turns into wine. But water turns into wine. And so Jesus is intervening. This is a sign of who Jesus is, and it's a sign of the kingdom of God. Okay, so I was looking around to see if he's here today. Chris Roden is relatively new on our staff, and Chris had a career in the Navy, and Chris is working in our groups area, and I had a really fun lunch with Chris a couple weeks ago as we were getting to know each other. So Chris told me he was an English major in college, he went into the Navy, and while he was in the Navy, he got a master's in math. And I said, that's not your normal story, like an English major going to become a ma- get a master's in math. So I said, how'd you like the math? He said, I loved the math. And I'm like, really? Because English majors don't usually love math. English majors are usually running from math. He said, I love math. I said, what did you love about it? He said, um, it's just the way math works. I said, what do you mean the way math works? He said, it's what math describes. I said, what do you mean it's what math describes? He said, math is present all around us. The chemical makeup of the air, everything that happens, the physics of our body weight on a seat, the load bearing of the chair, engineering, math is everywhere around us. But when you get into more advanced levels of math, what you realize is all the numbers and all the formulas, they don't create math, they just describe it. Oh man, all he had to do was pull the cork off that bottle for me. And I said, Chris, I mean, this is such an incendiary idea. I think, I've heard many musicians say when they write a song, they feel like they don't write the song, they feel like they receive the song. As though music is everywhere around us. And some people hear it and some people don't. And some people are like receptors, like antenna, that can grasp the music. Okay, I don't know how this sounds for you, but I've read a lot of books about near-death experiences. The consistency of the stories on certain angles is too consistent to be random crazy town. And often what's described is this remarkable surrounding music that's a sound that's far too glorious than anything we've ever heard. So 
Great songs, they're not created, they're not written, they're received. It's like a great work of art. Artists say this all the time. Sculptors say it, painters say it. And science itself would be like this. The scientific things that we have discovered, they're just describing what we all know exists, but we haven't been able to tap into it to describe it. And by definition, a discovery means we didn't know very much before because we're discovering more and we're on the journey of more discovery. There's a lot more to know. So is this a miracle? I think it's a sign. Just like numbers reveal the math that's all around us, Jesus turning the water to wine is a sign of the God who is the writer of the big story. And Jesus has come, God in the flesh, And this big story has a marvelous consummation as God is united with his people. Revelation 19 says, let's rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was given clothing of fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen she wears is the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel told me, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. In other words, this is the full consummation of the whole drama. This is the, if you could say it, what happens out here and what goes this way after that. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus' first sign happens at a wedding. It's a sign that is describing the larger realities that Jesus wants us to know of who God is. So the only question really then about miracles is when and why. You see, if, if God intervened all the time, if miracles happened all the time, life would become randomness and we couldn't do it. There would be no predictable scientific repeating realities that enable us to just do the basic things we do. Like what if one time you took a step, gravity worked, and the next time it didn't? What if one time you were playing tennis and, the, and, the, and gravity worked and the ball goes where you want and the next time it doesn't? You couldn't live sanely if it was miracle intervention all the time. It has to, by definition, happen very rarely. But what we begin to grasp with Jesus is it also happens very strategically. Jesus was asked a lot of times by doubters and skeptics, oh, do something miraculous for us, then we'll believe. As though this was a game, as though these were tricks, quips, as though they were little magic shows. Jesus never responds to that kind of temptation. It's never a show and it's never a gimmick. Why? Because the things that are at stake are too holy, too beautiful, too sacred, revealing the kingdom of God and the king himself. So is there this conflict with science? Truly, I would tell you, my belief in scientific methods led me to believe that there has to be a designer who is outside of it. G.K. Chesterton said, somehow or other an extraordinary idea has arisen that the disbelievers in miracles consider them coldly and fairly, while believers in miracles accept them only in connection with some dogma. The fact is quite the other way. The believers in miracles accept them, rightly or wrongly, because they have evidence for them. The disbelievers in miracles deny them, rightly or wrongly, because they have a doctrine against them. So we realize now that science with great respect and appreciation for it, is not quite the clean-cut concept that we might have thought. Because all science is 
displayed, it's interpreted, and it's taught by we human beings who are subject to emotions, to social viewpoints, to politics. COVID's taught us a lot about this. We keep hearing the word, I follow the science, but the science is not clear. Well, science empirically is clear, but the way it's being described is not clear because of our human capacities that get in the way. So what we begin to realize is there's more to it. This is a little bit like the atheist scientist who prays for his wife who's dying of cancer. It doesn't make any sense intellectually because this atheist scientist doesn't believe in any of that. But the depth of his love and the emotional power of it leads him to pursue something larger than the intellectual commitments that he's made. This is a God of love who has created us. And now again, Lewis says, in science, we've been reading only the notes to a poem. In Christianity, we find the poem itself. So did I mention that the wedding happened on the third day? You see, we wonder about miracles and why don't they happen. The resurrection is our full personal miracle where every one of us will receive the, quote, miraculous healing that we long for through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was raised from the grave by that same Spirit. His very life is bookended in the power of the Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And he's bringing that narrative into our experience so we can begin to move into and live in that grand narrative. It's like a wedding. It's a relationship of love that will never end. 150 gallons of celebrating is a lot. He wants us to know that this celebration is a massive outpouring of love and celebrating. His very life is bookended by these miraculous, no, by these very within his capability works of the Spirit of God. Let me close with Acts 2, 22. This is Peter speaking to people who are trying to figure Jesus out. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we stand in awe at how big you are. We're given a bit of a glimpse of how small we are. We pray for one another, Lord. Would you help our hearts grow in their capacity to receive the fullness of your love? Just as math isn't creating the numbers, the numbers are just describing what's out there. So all of what you're giving us in your scriptures is just describing the love that you have for us and the vision of your grand kingdom, your desire for us to be united with you forever. So we thank you and we pray that you'll help each of us on our journey of this to grow closer and closer to your beautiful heart. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.